Well, I'm not going to sugarcoat what is coming your way this morning. This is going to be a hard message. It's going to challenge you to think carefully about the world around you and about your faith in God's providence over what is going on in our world. But trust me, like the Psalms, by the end, you will have a great promise and a great hope. Amen? In our introduction to the Psalms, which was, believe it or not, about six weeks ago, we talked about the, the various types of songs that make up the collection of what we call the book of Psalms. And one of the most common types, especially when we talk about David, is what we call the lament Psalms. How many of you guys know what a lament is? It's something we don't do, we don't practice a lot in our culture. We are, we are eternally optimistic, right? We always want to keep the energy high and we don't want to slow down or stop long enough to actually lament over things. A lament is simply an expression of our grief or our sorrow. And oftentimes the lament psalms are focused on the wickedness that surrounded David in his life as a father and as a king. And that's the theme for this morning, David's lament over the wickedness of mankind. Now, I don't have to tell you that you and I are living today in an age of wickedness. We see it, don't we? And I could stand up here for hours and I could go on and on and on cataloging all of the wicked trends that are taking place in our world right now. But the perspective that we need to have, and this is taught throughout the scriptures, is that's the way it's always been. What we're experiencing, there's nothing new under the sun. What we're going through is nothing new. It's always been this way. If you lived in Abraham's day, anywhere near Sodom and Gomorrah, you knew things were pretty wicked. If you were living in Egypt in Moses' day and saw all of that slavery, if you lived in the period of the judges and were dealing with uh, the wickedness of the Canaanite tribes, or you lived in Judah in the 6th century BC when God was turning his people, Judah, over to destruction and exile. Rebellion against God has always been present. Rebellion against God has always ebbed and flowed in cycles throughout human history. There have been times in America where there's no doubt that our nation was more upright, that we were more fixed to Christian values in our culture. And there are times like today when it seems that we've entered into a deep and dark valley where vileness is not only accepted, it's actually celebrated. But again, this is par for the course in human history. We are just in another cycle, another chapter of the story of fallen mankind. Now, when we look around and see so much wickedness, there's a tendency among the faithful to come to the false conclusion that God's not paying attention or that he doesn't care. But Jeremiah, prophesying in the midst of wickedness right before the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., he said otherwise. He said this. Boom. He said, my eyes, this is the Lord's voice, my eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. Therefore, behold, I will make them known my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. My name is Yahweh. So friends, God is watching, and he takes copious notes. You always have to know that. Now, here's the thing we need to know about how the Lord works in the midst of wicked times. Yes, as we see in this passage from Jeremiah, he is active in judgment when people and nations turn against him. But at the same time, he is still always at work 
to accomplish his saving purposes. We have a tendency only to focus on the bad and not realize that God is still working. He is, in fact, using what man intends for evil to bring about his purposes. Just recently, I saw this, uh, this great testimony of this fact that stood out to me. Some of you may know or have heard of a YouTube personality by the name of Sean Ryan. You may have seen him or heard about him. Sean was once a Navy SEAL, uh, served in many years in combat zones, later became a CIA, CIA contractor and fought some more. He is a hard man who has seen a lot of wickedness, seen far more than most of us here today. He recently came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he speaks openly about it on his podcast. Now, he is still in what we would call the infant stage of faith, but his testimony is so powerful. He explains that the road that God took, on, took him on to get him to this place of faith was in interviewing people that he had come into contact with who had similar experiences as he had, seeing the worst wickedness that you can imagine, seeing things that you and I will never see in our lives, not just stories of of war, which is bad enough, but stories of awful things like sex trafficking and abuse of children and genocide and levels of government corruption that would make your head spin. And he interviewed all of these people and, and, and Sean hearing their stories and then factoring in his own circumstances and experiences, it dragged him into a very, very dark place in his life to the point where he was suicidal. He was in such despair. But fortunately, he had friends that knew the Lord. And they came and they intervened in his life and they shared with him about the gospel of hope. And as God began to work in his heart, he came to this important realization and he talks about it. He says, in order to escape all the wickedness of this world, I need a hope beyond this world. I need a hope beyond this world. I need a hope that someday all things will be made right, that all evil and wickedness will someday be stamped out forever. And he embraced the light of Jesus Christ and that light delivered him from this incredibly dark place. Now, Sean's story is just one of many stories taking place right now in the midst of this sinful world, in this culture we live in. So we gotta be careful. Whenever we look at wickedness around us, never doubt the purposes of God. He is always at work, amen? amen. Grab your Bibles. Let's turn to the Psalms. Today, we're looking at two Psalms again, two Psalms that are connected by this theme of David's lament over the wickedness all around him. Psalms 12 and 14 will start in 12. So the first half of this message, we're just going to diagnose the problem and the wickedness, and then we'll get to the hope. So hang with me. Don't check out on me. Look at verse 1. You're going to see how David describes the situation in his day. See if it doesn't sound like the world we're living in today. Verse 1. Help, Lord... For the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. And so David says, everybody's lying to their neighbor. It's replete in our culture. In Hebrew, he says they speak shav to one another, meaning emptiness. They speak nothingness to each other. It's speech that is empty because there's no, there's no truth to it. There's no depth to it. And lying is one of the foundational signs of man's fallenness and rebellion. It's common to all of us. Liars disobey God with their tongues. They pervert and twist what is true for their own gain. And sadly, this is what David had to endure as, as king. He looked around each day in the land and he saw dishonesty 
and he saw unfaithfulness throughout the land. And it caused him, right, rightly, to cry out to Yahweh for help and encouragement. He needed it. And obviously, the same kind of falsehood is replete in our world today, in our country, the twisting and spinning and outright redefining of language. We ask the question, what is a woman? And we're so foolish these days that we can't even agree on an answer to that question. Can you imagine? Could you have imagined that even 10 years ago, that we couldn't define what a woman is? Propaganda is what guides America right now. Nothing can be trusted. Nothing in print, nothing on a news program. In fact, lying in advertising and politics is so rampant now, so pervasive, that we have all just accepted it. We've come to expect that everything coming at us is a lie. We expect it. And as a nation, we're experiencing the consequences of that. The trust in all of our institutions across the board is utterly gone. And unless we sort of rein in this lying and falsehood, we will never unite as a people or flourish as a nation. It's that destructive, lying. Then continuing in verse 2, David elaborates more on this shav throughout the land. He says, with flattering lips, he writes, with a double heart, these people speak. Now, flattery is a whole other level of lying, isn't it? That's a whole other thing. Flattery is premeditated deception delivered with a smile. Think about that. It's one thing to speak what is just untrue. It's another to look somebody in the eyes and tell them what they want to hear, but not mean a word of it. And it's easy to fall into that trap if we're not careful because we just sometimes want to avoid trouble, confrontation. We just want to say what makes people happy, even if what we're about to say, we don't mean it. It's flattery. Smile and compliment a person in one setting, all fakey-fake, and then later in a different setting, say what you really think and tear them down. In both cases, you're manipulating the truth for selfish reasons. This is what... Every smooth-talking salesman does to reel you into a sale. It's what every sleazy politician does to earn your vote. There's nothing as base and nauseating as a spirit of flattery. It's, it comes from the lowest possible motive because it's so selfish. And it's interesting. Daniel tells us in his prophecy that when the final Antichrist comes, it's flattery that he will use to convince people to act wickedly against God's people. Flattery of all things. It's what flows naturally out of a person who functions with what David says here, a double heart, a double heart. Now think, think New Testament, James, right? What does he talk about? Being double-minded. He says it's unstable in all, its, all of its ways because it fluctuates back and forth and it's never really truthful. Such people morph their words to fit the need of the moment. And here's the thing, they can do it seamlessly and without a second thought because they have no fixed principles. They're just an amoeba that flexes for the moment. They're liars. They're hypocrites. They say one thing today, they say the opposite tomorrow, and yet they think in the future that you'll believe them again, that you'll keep believing them even though they speak out of both sides of their mouth. Spurgeon commented on this in his day. Listen to this great quote. He said, A man without a heart is a wonder, but a man with two hearts is a monster. It's true. Now, look at how David laments in verse 1. This is, this is really what breaks his heart. He says, The godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. This is a huge part of the problem in that day 
One of the reasons why lying and flattery and double-mindedness had increased in Israel during his reign, because faithfulness in the land was was on the decline. It was disappearing. It was withdrawing. Godliness was withdrawing from public life. Now, what's interesting about this is we know historically that under David, Israel was nearing the peak of its power. Militarily, right? In terms of, uh, in terms of history, it was at its most comfortable, wealthiest, most powerful during the reigns of David and Solomon. So David looked out and he saw fewer and fewer faithful men and women standing for Yahweh and for the covenant. Why? Because all that comfort and all that prosperity had produced a spiritually soft people that were now withdrawing from public life. Zealous believers were giving way to lukewarm believers. Compromise was becoming more common than obedience in the land. This is, we have to be aware of this in the West because this is what comfort and prosperity and wealth can bring if we're not on guard. And catch this, when godliness and faithfulness retreat, guess what? The wicked run into less spiritual resistance. When we retreat, when we create a vacuum, evil steps in. And that's what was happening in David's day. This is obviously happening today in America, isn't it? We have had too much comfort, too much leisure, too much prosperity, and not enough real hardship. We talk about first world problems all the time. We will fight and squabble over the dumbest little things because we have the the privilege of doing so because we have so little hardship in this country. And we take so much for granted. And we think it's going to last forever. If you talk to the average American, they'll say, oh, nothing will change. This will go on forever. We are headed for a cliff at some point, aren't we? And so like David, rather, listen, rather than just venting about the wickedness in our culture, rather than just complaining about the state of our country because we love to do that, right? These things ought to drive us to our knees in prayer. Because that's how David responds to this. He knows he can't go out and fix all this. Even even as the king, it drives him to prayer. And it should motivate us to engage the wickedness of our culture. When God gives us opportunities to step in and speak, we need to speak. Now, drop down to verse 8. Here's one of the predictable outcomes when faithfulness retreats, when it's on the decline. It says, The wicked strut about on every side, when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. So again, David is looking around his kingdom at this society that is not only embracing vileness, but it is exalting vileness. It's celebrating it. It's hard to imagine this, right? That the most wicked people in a society would become the most revered people in society. Does that ring a bell? In our life today? If you promote sexual deviancy... If you identify as LGBT, if you claim to be trans, if you cuss and swear continuously, if you are as outrageously provocative as possible, you will be applauded in our world today. That is a fact. You will be the most celebrated. And on the flip side, if you call out sin for what it is, if you advocate for traditional values, if you talk about the importance of the family, if you speak up for the unborn, guess what? you will be called a threat to society. That's where we are today. That's what's happening. So David has it right here. The whole moral climate of a civilization changes when things that are vile are honored. 
And that was happening in Israel in the 10th century. It allows the ungodly to strut about because they've come to believe that there is no accountability for their actions, that there will be no consequences for what they're doing. There was an interesting example of this just this past week. Maybe you saw it on the news or saw it online. There was a young Christian man somewhere, I think it was in Wisconsin, somewhere near uh, Milwaukee, Madison, somewhere in that area. And he had had enough of, of these drag shows that were taking place in his town. Um, and it wasn't just that they were drag shows. They, they were called family-friendly drag shows. And so children were being invited to come and attend and, and watch. And so he decided, I, I can't just sit and allow this. So he, he very peacefully went to this uh, event and he stood across the street and he brought his Bible and a little speaker and he just read from the Bible. And I saw an interview with him. He said, I intentionally did not read from Romans 1 or anything that could be considered an attack against the, the performers that day. He said, I opened up the book of Galatians. I read about the love of God. I read about repentance. I basically read about the gospel. And guess what happened? He was arrested. No warning. The police didn't come to him and say, hey, you know, you're being disruptive because he wasn't. Uh, they didn't tell him to just turn the speaker off or turn, no, no warning. They just, they just hauled him off. And so understand the message being sent there. The perverted man, scantily dressed as a woman, dancing in front of children, was exalted that day. And the young man reading scripture was labeled the threat by local officials. That's where we are. And when we see that type of thing happening more and more in our country, we need to react as David did. We need to go and say, Lord, help us. Help us. Now, turn over to Psalm 14. We'll see even more. I told you this was going to be heavy, right? But again, nothing new under the sun. 10th century B.C. Israel, 21st century America. Psalm 14, look at verse 4. The question is asked, do all the workers of wickedness not know? Or it could be said, will evildoers never understand? who eat up or consume my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. That's very poetic language. We talked about this in the introduction, that it, this is poetry, right? And it sounds a little strange to our ears, but the reference here is to the casual attitude that the wicked have in the way they prey upon other people. They simply consume them like they would daily bread. Not a second thought in the world. No remorse, just like eating a meal, it's as normal and natural as can be to the wicked, to consume other people. They will shamelessly exploit others for their own gain. They will oppress the weak and the vulnerable. They will literally demand to have the right to kill their own babies. They will demand that their children have the right to mutilate their bodies and then call it gender-affirming care. David is describing people who have descended into the depths of depravity. They've become void of a conscience and willing to seek any means necessary to fulfill their lustful desires and to trample other people as they do it. And then to top it off, they will point the finger at you and me and say, we're the problem because we object to the way this society is going down this road. Good is evil and evil is good. So what's at the core of this? What's the foundation? Go back to Psalm 12. And let's look at verse 3. Psalm 12, verse 3. 
David prays, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks great things. And, and what that means is the tongue that makes great boasts. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? So, so catch the picture he's drawing. These ungodly people in David's kingdom who are speaking lies from this double heart, they're also making great boasts. And there's no more arrogant boast than what you see there in verse 4. They say, there is no master over us. We can speak as we please. We will prevail. This is the arrogance of mankind, right? We will prevail. We saw something similar when we studied Psalm 2, where it said, the people conspire against God and against his anointed, saying, let us throw off their cords that bind us. In other words, the people say, we will not allow God to restrain our desires. We will do as we please. They make great boasts. And this is the attitude expressed in Psalm 14.1. Go over to Psalm 14.1. And we've all heard this, right? This is one of the most famous statements in all the Psalms. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is no God. Now in the Hebrew, that's just two words. It literally says, no God. Or it's best understood as the people say, there's no God for me. No God for me. See, in the ancient Near East of that day, there really was no such thing as philosophical atheism like we see today. That didn't really exist back then. Nobody, nobody walked around in 1000 BC saying, well, there is no God or gods. The idea of deities existing was just a given, right? So what David's describing here is what we call practical atheism. It's the idea that, yeah, God exists, but I don't care. It's the idea that I can live life as though God doesn't exist. I can live life free from his restraints. Yeah, he may be there, but I don't care. It's practical atheism. And there are so many people in our culture today, the average person you bump into at Starbucks, if you press them, they will say, well, okay, yeah, God exists, or God probably exists, but their next statement is going to be, but, but I don't care. It doesn't affect my life. It's practical atheism. They choose not to worry about it. They choose not to think about it. It is the most common form of rebellion that exists among mankind today, where we make an intentional decision to ignore the possibility of God. Because who wants that, right? We ignore all the evidence around us. We're like, I don't see this creation. It doesn't matter how it came into, be, into existence, <laughs> right? Oh, all this design and all this stuff, it just popped from the Big Bang. Okay, that's, that's, that's good enough for me. Or I'm going to ignore all this internal evidence in my conscience. Now I'm going to push that out. This is what people do each and every day. And biblically, it's the polar opposite of wisdom because the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. Recognizing not only does he exist, but recognizing his sovereign rule and absolute power. So for the man or woman to say, no God for me, he may exist, but not for me, that is the height of folly. And that's what David is saying here. And the vast majority of the world does this each and every day when they wake up. No God for me. And they're fools. Now imagine living as a practical atheist in of all places, ancient Israel. A people who have seen from generation to generation the love and faithfulness of Yahweh. Right? Who have saved their people. And yet now it's gotten a little comfortable Got a little prosperity, a little peace. There's no armies at the gate. There's no shortage of food and water. And so we can now 
act as if there is no God. We can turn our backs on the covenant. We can oppose David as our king. And this is why David is lamenting. And these are not stupid people. When David uses the word fool, this is not an attack on their intelligence at all. Some, listen, there are a lot of very, very smart atheists. And yet they make this conscious choice, this moral decision to ignore the truth about reality. Paul says that professing to be wise, they become fools. And that's what David's describing. And notice how David points to the location of their foolishness. Where is it? It's in his heart. It's in his heart that man says there's no God. That makes a difference because this points back to the corrupted nature of man. Because natural man is always going to try to deny the existence of God. Get this, because he doesn't want God to exist. He doesn't want it because a sovereign God would rule over him. A sovereign God would put restraints on his life, on his lusts. A sovereign God would hold him accountable. So he wishes God away and just puts him out of his mind. So I, I, I tell you this so that you guys don't get, don't get fooled or bullied by academics or condescending deconstructors when they mock your faith and tell you that what you believe is not rational. Being a God denier is really not rooted in the things they claim it is. It's the result of a corrupted heart. It's the result of spiritual blindness and a deep lust to have no moral restraints on their life. That's the source of it. And here's the truth. The fact that people, ins the people that insist on denying the existence of God don't actually erase God from the universe. He's still there. You know, I hear people say, I will, I will not bow to Jesus as Lord. Well, he's Lord anyway. Right? right? That's the thing. They think they can wish it away. It's the height of foolishness because Jesus is Lord over all. So let's look, at the, let's look at the scorecard, as they say. It's not a pretty picture. David is lamenting all of this wickedness in his day. The godly and faithful are in decline. Lying and flattering with a double heart is on the increase. Vileness is now exalted. Praying on the vulnerable has become commonplace. Boasting that they have no master and denying the existence of God. 10th century B.C. Israel, 21st century America, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Not a pretty picture. And so what did David conclude as he looked out? Let's stay in Psalm 14. Go back up to the top. Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek after God. But they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Does that sound familiar to your ears? It should. Because Paul famously cites David's words in his brilliant discourse on the universal nature of sin in Romans 3. He literally quotes him. And Paul concludes that not a single person, Jew or Gentile, will stand before God as righteous apart from his justifying grace. That's the conclusion. Because none of us is good. Because none of us is righteous. And we're born into this condition. David knew this in 1000 BC, long before Paul. We are, as Paul would later write, by nature, 
children of wrath. And we see this in our kids. Look, you guys who are parents, you know this, right? Right? Okay. Did you have to teach your child to be selfish? Literally got an answer from the front row. Did you have to teach your child to lie or to grab that toy away from the other child? Of course not. They're experts at these things because it comes naturally to them. So you can search the whole human race, David says, and God has, he says, God has looked down and there isn't a single person who has loved God with all of his heart and has loved his neighbor as himself. Not one. Not one in our species has done it. Not one. And in their natural state, not one person has ever woken up in the morning and said, I'd like to die to myself and seek after God. Nobody. Because Paul will write later in Romans 8, the human mind is, that's set on the flesh is, is not open to God, it's hostile to God. Right? The human heart will not and cannot submit to God's law by our nature. That's why our nature has to be transformed. That's why this phrase of being born again, we have to be brought to spiritual life. God has to do that work to transform our hearts. And it's interesting. I, I chuckled at this this week as I was prepping this. I'm like, Paul catches so much grief today from people who despise what he writes in Romans 3. Like, it's so harsh, they say. It's so this, it's so that, it's so gloomy. David wrote it. <laughs> Nobody throws shade at David. We always attack Paul, even though David understood that principle a thousand years before Paul even was born. See, David had a strong conviction about sin because he had experienced a lot. This is, this is something to really take note of. You know, get rid of the Paul hate for a second. Look at David. He knew the basic reason why he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He knew the reason why he had arranged for the murder of Uriah. He said it. He said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. He didn't blame Bathsheba. He didn't blame his upbringing. He didn't blame the temptations he faced as a king. He traced it back to his very nature at birth. Right? His heart was corrupt. And he said, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Very real about it. Very true. And then he knew there was only one solution to his problem. I mean, David really lays out a beautiful gospel, does he not? Here's the solution. Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David knew in 1000 BC, long before Paul came on the scene, that it all had to be a work of God. That God has to draw, that God has to justify, that God has to cleanse and God has to save. So yeah, it's all pretty gloomy at this point. Not a single person is good. Most live as practical atheists. They deny that God exists. They lie, they flatter, they boast, and they prey on others for gain. But now let's go back to Psalm 12, verse 5, and see how God reacts to David's prayer. Psalm 12, verse 5. Because of the devastation of the afflicted and the the best way to understand that is, is the needy, the, pre, the people who need God because of their devastation, because of their groaning, the Lord says what? Now I will arise. Now I will arise. And I will set him, those in need, in the safety for which he longs. 
This is the encouragement. Because guys, let, can we be honest for a second? It looks like the wicked are prospering. With our natural eyes, we look around and we're like, they really seem to be enjoying their lives. And I feel like I'm losing. It's easy to get in that mindset. It looks like they have all the blessing in the world, even as they lie, even as they flatter and they operate selfishly for personal gain. And it can be so frustrating. Can we just acknowledge that? So let's, let's agree on this. It can be frustrating to watch. But know this, God is always watching their evil ways. He is not a distant deity who made things and stepped back and said, let's see where this goes. That's not our God. The wicked think they're acting in secret, that they're getting away with it, but it's not hidden from the Lord. He is keeping track of every word, everything typed, every single deed, and his judgment is inevitable. You've got to trust in that. And so at some point, according to his will, God will arise and he will intervene for the sake of those he loves. And he will impose limitations on the spread of evil. And he will overrule the plans of evildoers for the benefit of you and I, for his people. That's the promise that we have throughout Scripture. The Lord will preserve and protect and be a refuge for his children. Now that's something you got, you've just got to hold on to when you get frustrated and you feel like you just need to vent and complain about all the wickedness in the world that our God is faithful. That's what we see in the next two verses. Look at verses 6 and 7. David points to the word of God and his promises as our guarantee that he is with us and ultimately that we have the victory in him. This is so important. Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver refined in a furnace, refined or purified seven times, you, O Lord, will keep them, the faithful. You will preserve him from this wicked generation forever. Now, David's point here is to draw an obvious contrast between the lying and the words of the wicked in verse 2 and the flawless words of Yahweh. This is obvious, but we need to say it out loud. Man's word cannot be trusted. Man is going to lie and flatter and deceive, and all of his words will perish with him. But in contrast, God's word is tested and refined seven times, which is the number of perfection. It is perfect and holy. There are no lies in it. There's no flattery. There's no deception in God's word. And God's word will never perish. So it's like it's one of these things where David is setting aside these two choices. Who will you trust? Will you trust man or will you trust Yahweh? God's promise through David in verse 7 is that he will guard and protect the faithful in the midst of all this wickedness by preserving his word for them. That's so important. When we, get, when we get upset about what's happening in the world, when we start to despair, we have that Bible in your lap or in your hand that God has preserved to go back to, that talk about all of his promises, that reveal his nature and his faithfulness. That's where we run to. 3,000 years after David wrote that, you and I can confirm that what he wrote is true. God has preserved his word. It's in your laps. With all the manuscript evidence and all the history behind it, God has done this. The Bible has passed through the furnace of persecution and criticism and doubt and vicious attacks, and yet you're sitting with it in your lap. 
One church historian says this, the scriptures are like a mighty anvil that has worn out countless hammers. Because every time the hammer comes down on it, the hammer breaks. And it's still there like a rock. Not only has the Bible survived 3,000 years, do you know right now it's growing in breadth and influence? You want to be encouraged? Listen to this number. 20 million copies of the Bible were purchased last year. 20 million copies, and that is twice the number purchased in 1950. Which we look back and go, oh, that was a really godly time. Twice the number of Bibles. Now there's, a bit more, there's a larger population, but twice the number of Bibles are being purchased today. Organizations that track these things estimate, get this, there are 6 billion copies of the Bible in circulation right now across the world. God has preserved his word. And it shouldn't surprise us. He said this would be so, right? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, Jesus said. So he promised it and he's delivered. And all of this in the face of zealous pagans who have tried so hard to eradicate God's word. Uh, being a history nerd, this makes me laugh. So I'm putting two guys on the screen. <laughs> Take, for example, the emperor Diocletian. Get this, in the year 303, he ordered the destruction of every Bible in his empire. And within 10 years, Constantine had come to power and declared Christianity a protected religion throughout the empire and the word of God spread. Diocletian, he just died. Or, or take Voltaire, this French humanist, right? He once arrogantly said this, another century and there will not be a single Bible on the earth. He said that. And then he died. And after his death, get this, his printing press and the house where he lived was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society. <laughs> and guess what they did there? They printed Bibles. So God seems to have a great sense of irony in these types of things, right? Remember how the psalmist wrote in Psalm 2 that the kings of the earth take their stand about against God, and what does he do? Enthroned in the heavens, he, he laughs, and he scoffs at them, just like he did with these two gentlemen. Sounds about right. So in spite of what we see with our eyes, all the chaos and the darkness happening in our world, we can know that God is always protecting his people and preserving his word David knew that was true in his day. We know it's true today. And I think if David could walk into our service this morning, he would say to you guys, man, I wish I had the resources you have. All those, he'd look around and see all these Bibles and go, you should drink that in. Every single drop of it. And not neglect it. And you should fill your heart and your mind with its wisdom because there you will find life. And you will find every spiritual blessing. So don't take it for granted. Now, one last thing we got to look at, and then I'll, I'll be done. Ultimately, we see in Psalm 14 that David's hope was not in fixing all the wickedness on the earth because he saw something bigger and better coming down the pike. Look at Psalm 14, the very last verse, verse 7. And maybe you caught this when we read it earlier. It's, it, almost seems, it almost seems out of place in the flow of his, of his discussion but he breaks into almost, almost his benediction. He says, oh, that the salvation or deliverance of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. This was the ultimate answer in David's mind 3,000 years ago. God's Messiah coming out of Zion to save Jacob, to bless Israel. The far greater kingdom. He, 
David understood that he was a king, but there was a greater king. And this greater king someday would come and establish a greater kingdom. David knew this. And because Yahweh had always been faithful, David was good about looking back and saying, let's see, God, faithful, faithful, faithful. Okay, he'll be faithful with this as well. His Messiah will come and he could rest in that promise. And that needs to be our posture today. As I've been sharing in our Unshakable series on Christian nationalism, like David, our hope isn't trying to run around and fix all the wickedness on this earth. It's actually above our pay grade, right? And it, our goal isn't to grab hold of the reins of civil government to try to impose God's law on people. Though we live on the other side of the cross from David, our hope is still in the same thing. It's the coming of God's Messiah. It's the return of Christ. That is ultimately our hope. Because once and for all, when he returns, he will deal with every person who has rebelled against him and lived as though he doesn't exist. That's the promise we have. So my counsel to you this morning is don't fixate on all the wickedness happening. I know how easy it is. Can I let you in on a truth? People want you upset. The news wants you divided. Everybody wants to stir you up because there's benefit in that. Don't fixate on the wickedness. Don't live in fear. Don't live in dread of the future. Know that God will arise in His perfect timing. Know that He is busy right now reaching and working to save people like Sean Ryan in the midst of all the darkness. And know that He will sustain you and I in our faith, that He will preserve us, and He will preserve His Word no matter what comes down the pike. Trust in Him. And in the meantime, our mission our mission in the years that we're given is so simple. Stay faithful to the calling that he's given us. Stay faithful to the mission. Abide in Jesus. Let your entire life be an act of worship. Root yourself deeply in God's word. Be salt and light. Call people to repentance and faith and love one another well in the body of Christ. That's our calling. That's our mission. It's not difficult. Trust the Lord. Amen? Let's bow our heads. We're going to spend just a moment praying through some of these psalms, some of these principles. So don't check out on me as the worship team comes up. Let's pray to Yahweh. Help, O oh Lord. Our cry, Lord, is the same as David's in his day. Help us, O oh Lord. We thank you, Lord, first of all, that your promises are trustworthy. We thank you that you have preserved your pure and precious word refined to perfection. Lord, continue to preserve us. Protect your people. And God, help us as we look at this passage to remember that, that we are sinners, that there really is nothing good in us that we should deserve to be saved. So Lord, we praise you this morning that, that you have done a work in our hearts, that you brought us to spiritual life. We thank you for your amazing grace Lord, thank you for always being our refuge. Thank you that you were always with your people. And God, prevent us from falling into the spirit of fear. Prevent us from, from having dread that somehow the world can overwhelm us, that the world can overwhelm you. Lord, we know that your eyes are always upon us. And we know that you will rise to protect your people. And finally, Lord Jesus, we, we pray, come quickly. Establish your glorious kingdom. Bring us home, Lord. That's where our heart really is. We long to be with you forever. And so, Lord, come quickly. Thank you for our time this morning. We praise you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.